But I want to start off with a little quiz. And um, the rules of this quiz are this. You have to pick, uh, it's a multiple choice. So I recognize some of you uh, panic if it's like an essay. Um, so let me, just, let me just say this. Here's the question, um, or, or here's the thing. Shouting fire in a crowded room is, all right? Hang on. A, don't shout out your answer, Sharon Adam. A, that is immoral. B, that is the right thing to do. C, that is morally neutral. In other words, it's not either right or wrong. Um, D, all of the above. E, none of the above. And F, stop giving me tests in church. All right, so... Get your answer in your head, and on the count of three, we're all going to shout out our answer at the same time. One, two, three, go. <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, I, heard a, I heard a bunch of these. All right. Um, let, me, let me talk through the answer here for a second. Okay, do you have your answer down? Whatever you wrote down, whatever you were thinking, some of you are like already rebelling. You're like, I'm not writing anything down, Pastor. I just think it. I know it. I got it all up here. Um, let's talk about these for a second. First of all... Um, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but the answer can't possibly be D, okay? Um, first of all, I realized after the fact, it's, it's not even at the bottom, so saying all of the above. <laughs> um, it's, maybe it's just picking those, but here's why that can't possibly be true, okay? Um, because if you, if you look at this, um, there are what's called mutually exclusive truth claims going on in this. Do you see that? Mutually exclusive truth claims. So something can't possibly be the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do and no thing at all, all at the same time. So it can't be that. If we want to stay in reality, if we want to talk about actual truth and not fantasy land. So that's number one. Um, Some of you may have put E. How many put E in here? Raise your hand, okay? Um, why did you put E? Let me pick on you, Ray, Raymond, because I know you and I know that you'll be okay with me picking on you. You're just going to shake your head. He's like, no, don't, please don't pick on me. Yeah. Okay. If there is a fire, then you should shout out fire. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Tegan. Yeah, but also if it's not, it's causing chaos, right? Okay, so we're... We're, we're tracking with this idea. Um, how, many would, would, how many of you would have preferred for me to have an option up there that said, it depends, right? Yeah, that's what we really need. Actually, more information is needed. It depends, right? So if you stop and think about it, it kind of depends on that. Here's what I want to bring up. Here's the point of this little quiz, that words matter. Um, a single word, fire, right, can either cause life to someone or through a stampede, it could actually kill someone. Words are weighty. Words are exceptionally weighty. Would you agree with me that a lot of people are shouting fire right now? Man, fire is being shouted left and right. And yes, I'm using that in a political way. Uh, People are shouting fire on the left and the right and in the middle and everything in between. And I want to bring up the idea of words because of this. Um, If you, this morning, are one of those who is shouting fire, 
I hope to God and pray that you sound like Jesus. I hope that if you're the one shouting fire, you're shouting fire and you sound like Jesus. I hope if you're one of those who is not shouting fire right now, that your silence sounds like Jesus. That the reason you're not shouting fire and warning is because Jesus would have kept silent on this particular topic. Today's text is going to show us the weight of words. So words are something you can actually build your life on, and words are strong enough to absolutely crush a life. And we'll kind of see that as we look moving forward. So words matter. Your words matter. The words that you give out matter. The words that you take into your life matter. You may have heard this statement before, that Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. You may have heard this statement, that Christianity is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Raise your hand if you've heard that, okay? I would submit to you, these are both not true. I think these are both not true. Here's what I mean. In the first one, Jesus came with the good news of relationship, not rules. Amen? That's the good news. The good news is not more rules. That's not good news. We've already had that news. The good news of Jesus is relationship, not rules. So that's what the first one is trying to get to. But here's what the second one can lead towards. It can lead toward thinking rules are bad. Out with rules. Out with boundaries. I just turned... Where's my hanky? I need to wipe myself. I'm a southern preacher. Um, Out with boundaries. Yeah, that's right. Someone clap for me. Rob said this. Rob, I tease Rob nonstop about being from Arkansas. And once in a while he tells me, he goes, when the preacher's struggling or the keyboardist is struggling, someone from the church will say, bless him, Jesus. Bless him, Jesus. That's how you know you're struggling if people are calling that one out. Um, Where was I? Here we go. The second one. Christianity is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Here's what that may tend toward. That, to an extreme degree, could actually find you not following Jesus at all. It can have you dismissing whole chunks of scripture written in red in your gospel so you know Jesus said it out of your Bible. So, so I think that uh, neither one of these is completely accurate. Think about this for a second. Every relationship you are in has do's and don'ts. Let me take marriage, for example. That's a biblical picture of our relationship to God, right? The church is the bride. Who's the groom? Come on, neighborhood Bible church. Yeah, you know this. It's Jesus. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. What an intimate uh, picture of that. Now, my being married to my wife, does that exclude rules and do's and don'ts from, from happening? Absolutely not. There are do's and don'ts. There are some commands for me as a husband as to how I am to live with my wife. What is forbidden in marriage? Think about this in our walk with God. Think about this in actual marriage. Adultery. Let's pick an easy one. That's a clear don't, right? Well, we're a modern couple and we're just free of everything. Hear this. Ultimate goodness is not having zero do's and don'ts. Ultimate goodness is being in right relationship. And right relationship includes do's and don'ts. Okay? So as you're saying these things, I have said I have said that. Christianity is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. But I better qualify what that looks like. 
right? I better, I better look at, at what I'm saying with that. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're at, verse 14. Turn in your Bible there. It's not going to be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, take the Bible in the seat back and take it home. It's not stealing because I just gave it to you, okay? Take the Bible. Man, we want to give you a Bible if you don't have one. Pull it up on your phone. Pull it up in front of you so you know I'm not lying about this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Listen carefully. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will spread into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that, that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Do you hear the do's and don'ts in this short little chunk of, of scripture? Let me recap them. Do, remind them. Do, charge them. Don't quarrel. Do your best. Don't argue. Do's and don'ts, right? So there they are. Let me review for those of you who have forgotten, um, and because reminding is biblical, we keep seeing this over and over, remind of the basics. Here's where we are. We are in a series called um, 4,000 Hours to Live. That's how you read that, 4,000 Hours to Live. Remember, Paul is a death row inmate pastor writing to a church that's in trouble, specifically to his young apprentice, his child in the faith, Timothy. Timothy's a young minister. He's saying, stay put, Timothy, in Ephesus. I know it's hard. I know it's wicked. I know you're going to be countered at every turn. Stay put. Do the work that I'm telling you to do. Here's what's interesting. Every single person in the sound of my voice, whether you're just outside that wall, hello, people outside, people inside, people at home in TV land, okay? We all have this in common. Every single one of us were gifted a life that we didn't ask for. Every single person alive here has life, not because of something they earned. It was simply gifted to you. Most of us probably have an idea that we are going to live a good, long life. 4,000 weeks. What is 4,000 weeks? Roughly 77 years. That's about average. Many of us in this room think, yeah, I'm going to get to 77 Some of you are like, at least. I'm cruising way past that. Those of you past 77, you're like, preach. Yes, I'm doing better than average. 4,000 weeks to live. Now, here's the reality. Not a single person in the sound of my voice has any idea when your actual time is at. At any given moment in this church family, we have people being born. We have people being born again. Weren't the baptisms great last week? Man, I'm still flying high on that. We always have people being born and people being born again. You know what else? We also have people dying and wandering away from the faith. That's family life in a church. And um, I want to stop and pray right now for a couple that is going through it. I say this all the time, that our life is but a mist. Sneeze and then watch the vapor disappear. That's your life. If you get seven years or 77 years, that's your life. 
It's a whisper in the scope of eternity. I say this all the time. None of us knows what's going to hit us this week. About a month ago, five weeks ago, something like that, there's a couple that sits right over here almost every single Sunday without fail. And on Wednesday of that week, devastating news came that the wife has stage four cancer all through her body. Um, I have asked their permission to share this with you. I invite you, church family, not to enter into gossip about this, but to enter into prayer about this, that we weep with those who weep. Kent and Linda Conrad are in the valley of the shadow of death right now. And um, as I've reached out and talked to them, Linda in particular, Linda is the one preaching the eternal truth that our faith and our life is built on to me rather than me to her. She's been an encouragement. God is supernaturally giving her comfort and strength and wisdom and clarity right now. So I call you, church, to pray for Linda Conrad. That's her name, and I want to do that right now. God, we hold up our sister to you, uh, the woman that you thought up and created before we ever saw her on this planet and God, you have gifted her time on this earth, and you know the beginning from the end, and we trust you in that. God, I pray for Kent right now, uh, that he would be uh, the husband that he has been for her all along. God, that you would sustain them. God, we are asking for a miracle. God, we ask that you reverse the natural course of things and gift her more time here. God, I'm confident in Linda, as I've been confident in so many people, God, that should you give a stay to the to the disease in her body, she would be unashamed and give glory to you about that. God, from our vantage point, that seems best. We trust you. We love you. We cry out to you in our pain. God, we also trust you uh, as we just sang that you're, you're the God who alone is wise in the good times and bad. God, be with our brother and sister today. Amen. <clears throat> 4,000 weeks to live, 4,000 hours to live. What's 4,000 hours? It's about 167 days. Paul, when he writes this, has a little less than that with his time on earth. He has about three months to live when he writes 2 Timothy. It's the last biblical words he'll ever write. He's going to lose his head to a wicked Nero who's killing him for his Christian faith. We already know the end of the story, that he's going to be faithful to the end. Second Timothy is a call for Christians to endure urgently. What we saw last week is this, that God's word is never bound. You can chain up the preacher, you can't chain up God's word. It's unstoppable, it's unchangeable. It is going to go forth and accomplish what it's been designed to do. Here's what's fascinating. Quarantine the city. You can't stop the church. After whining and bickering for a little bit, most churches got on with kingdom work. We figured out how to do stuff. We stopped griping about the fact that we couldn't meet in person like the good old days, meaning two weeks ago, and we figured it out. Why? Because the church is unstoppable. The church is unshakable. Jesus is leading the church, and he's going to see to it that it's going to finish its end. So today is back to this idea of do's and don'ts, but framed in relationship. If you miss the relationship, the whole thing spills and it makes a mess. The whole thing gets really, really ugly if we lose the relationship. All right, Steve Feldmeyer, where are you? I just saw him. Steve, go back to Ellie in the back. 
I picked Steve because I was going to pick a child, but Steve, Steve has this childlike quality that's amazing, and, uh, and he's going to be the one. So we're going to blindfold Steve for just a moment, and while you're doing that, let me just give a little, uh, let me just give a little parable. Make sure he can't see, Ellie. You do a good job back there. I love that she's repurposing a mask from quarantine days over his eyes. That's good. Quarantine your eyesight. All right. Um, all right, listen, this is a church participation thing, okay? So you guys get to participate in this. Um, how can I compare this generation? It is like a child playing hide and seek, but hiding from the truth and seeking in all the wrong places, listening to competing voices, telling him just where the treasure is, okay? At this point, here's what I want. Church, you are competing voices telling this child where the treasure is, go. Start telling him. Talk. A lot of you, a lot of you are doing this. There was hey, Steve, I want you to stop. I want you to stay right where you are, and I want you to listen to my voice. Can you hear me, Steve? Not if you can hear me. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to disregard everyone else's voice. And I want you to take five steps forward. You're totally in the clear. Keep coming. You're totally clear, Steve. I promise you. You're, you're really good. Keep walking forward. Okay, I'm right next to you now. Keep walking straight ahead. Okay, just you're, you're totally in the clear. You're in the center of the idol. Don't listen to Lucas at all. In a second, you're going to get to the stage where I stand... I'm going to stop you right now. Step up. There you go. Step up. Now, turn around. And then just, what I want you to do, I want you to reach down with your right hand. You're going to feel something cold. Now, open, open, your, uh, open your blindfold. Are you, di- are you diabetic? No. Good. All right. Give it up for Steve. All right. Man, you guys are good at being competing voices. That's awesome. All right, Steve just got the best flavor of Ben and Jerry's. It's called half-baked, and it's amazing. And Steve, you don't even need this, but you have permission to eat ice cream in church, man. That's good stuff. All right, um, extra strength cleaner was your other option, by the way. Uh, There's a time for work, but this isn't it. This is a time for eating ice cream. Um, Steve, uh, how challenging was that? Very. Very challenging, Okay. Tell me, about, tell me about your experience. Uh, what, were you, what were you hearing? What was frustrating? What was kind of going on with you? So I tried to hear one voice and follow it. Yep. And then when I ran into something, I stopped listening. To okay. Okay. So wait, really quick. You were hopeful someone in here actually had your good in mind? Yes. That's amazing. Go, keep going. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Everyone like increased the volume. I was going to try and pull a Jesus, like quiet the storm. I'm like, no, Lord, they're rebels. They wouldn't listen to me. Keep going. Yeah. And then when you touched me and you were right next to me, yeah. like, you weren't even talking that loud, but I could hear yep. you clearly. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Steve. Man, you're good at articulating what went through your, your, your head. Give it up. So let me ask you this. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did you trust that I had your best interest in mind during this setting? Okay, about a 9. I'm like, anything more than 5 is passing. So give me, give me a D plus, brother. Um, so, so you know me well enough that, that like you volunteering for this, you jumped right up and you're an extrovert. So that's not a huge deal, but, but you trusted me enough to, to have this. Now here's, here's the driving home point. Are you angry or frustrated at me for giving you do's and don'ts? No. Not at all, right? Completely not because you needed do's and don'ts to figure your way, right? What a picture, right? That is the picture of God. I had no, I had no intention, by the way, of coming over, touching you, being in your ear or any of that. I needed that. I realized, well, he's not going to get here. I can't just shout above these people. And I saw you taking tiny steps. So, um, so with that, do's and don'ts aren't bad. The do's and don'ts of Scripture are not bad. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all of the do's and don'ts that I've given you. Everything I've commanded. Following Jesus means following do's, don'ts, waits, maybes, all kinds of stuff, even when we can't see it. Even if it's a straight line in God's point of view, it's not in, in the view of the person experience, experiencing life the way we all do, one day at a time. Here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I'm going to focus on one central to-do. Remember I said that Paul has some greatest hits in his epistles, his pastoral epistles? This is one of them. Do your best to present yourself to God as an approved workman who's rightly handling the word of truth. Man, that verse is really worthwhile uh, looking at. I called this message, Do Your Best, without any qualifiers. If you Google Do Your Best and look for images, you get all kinds of fun, crazy advice. Um, it's not really that crazy. It's just like sort of like Hallmark card uh, meaningless mush. It's kind of how, how I'd phrase it. But here it is. Um, do your best and forget the rest right? That could be terrible advice. Do your best and forget the rest, okay? That's, that's one. Maybe I'm just a cynical old man. I'm not positive, but um, do your best always. That's a qualifier of when to do your best. When should I do it? Always. Um, do your best. God's got the rest. That's sort of a Christian version of, of some other things. There's loads more, but here's what I decided. I'm not going to give any qualifications. Do your best for God? Of course. Everything we do is, is for God, Right? Our life is a gift, and we're just gifting it back to him. So we don't need to say, do your, your, your best for God. How about do your best in God? Of course. Right? The, the same one who just rose Jesus from the dead is the one who now dwells in us. That's what sets a Christian apart from a professing Christian. We have the spirit of the living God in us at all times. So do your best for God, in God? Yeah, both of those. You actually don't even need to say that. Simply... Do your best. It's powerful because all these other things are true. Now watch all these don'ts. When you do your best, full stop, period, Christian, it means that you won't bicker, verse 14. It means that you won't need to be ashamed, verse 15. It means that you won't be all talk, verse 16. It means that you won't follow the bad examples 
because you'll be following Jesus. Verse 17. Isn't it amazing how if we're focused on the right thing, a ton of the wrong things sort of just fade away? Turn my eyes upon Jesus. Let me look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Tons of the don'ts kind of take care of themselves when we're doing the right thing. Now, do the right uh, things, but there's some don'ts in there, right? So if, if all it is is just have the right thoughts, be the right person, be in right relationship, just do your best. Of course, in God and all that. Why are the don'ts in there? Here's why, okay? It's for the Hymenaeus and Philetus in all of us. Are there actual people named Hymenaeus and Philetus in this congregation that he should avoid? Absolutely. Those are actual people that he is naming names. But how about turning it to you? There's a Hymenaeus and a Philetus in you. Whose voice do you hear most? Your own. Right? Repeating things. Maybe they started from someone else's voice. But there's a Hymenaeus and Philetus in here. And so that gives us parameters, guardrails, of what it means to do our best. We don't get to define that ourselves. We have a saying around here um, that came from a series a long time ago, but here it is. Give your life to understand what God says. Live your life based on what you learn. I say give your life to understand what God is because of a passage like this. We're going to get into this, but the preacher, the pastor, is to be a diligent worker to rightly handle the word of truth. If it was easy, if it was just something that you just hear it and plug it in and go, then I wouldn't say give your life to understand what God says. I'd say just, just read it, take two seconds on that, and then live out what you learn. Give your life to understand what God's word says means this, that my perception of truth, beauty, justice, and goodness changes as I grow in the truth. Does beauty, goodness, and justice change? No, that's actually eternal. But my understanding of it, the way that I act toward it, grows as I grow up in the truth. So if you're a Christian here today, you are a person of the word. Christians are people of the word. Think about this. The word was there at the beginning of all of creation. The word, logos, became words when the Bible was written. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that the word who was there in the beginning, right, became flesh and walked amongst us. So the word became words when the Bible was written. The word became flesh when Jesus came. Merry Christmas. We are people of the word. So our link to knowing what is Jesus like? What is God for? What is he against? How would he respond in this? Should I shout fire? Or shall I keep silent? Give your life to understand what God says. Church, this is a full-time thing for believers. I want you to remember that this is very specifically written to a pastor. This is an older pastor writing to a younger pastor saying, do your best. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of walk you through some things. But here's the kicker. We'll get to this at the very end. But even though this is written very specifically to a pastor, you don't say, well, I'm not a pastor, so this doesn't apply to me. We actually get in on this, okay? I'll show you some very specific ways at the end that that's true. 
But I want to keep the context of what's being talked about in front of us. So think about this for a second. What keeps you from doing your best? Okay? Just think about that question for a moment. I'm actually going to have you wrestle with the Lord on this. Because some of us here do your best, and we hear all kinds of accompanying messages with that. Right? We immediately feel small. We immediately feel burdened. We immediately feel shame or guilt that I know I'm not doing my best. We might immediately feel hopeless. We might immediately feel puffed up, maybe proud, maybe so fired up. Maybe we're kind of gullible towards do your best, and we keep going, yeah, and then we run and smash into something and go, why do I listen to those speeches that get me fired up and I'm not really paying attention? Do your best. What keeps you from doing your best? Sometimes past failure, right? Sometimes fear of failure, I think sometimes a scarcity mindset, I fall into this, lack of opportunity, lack of time, lack of know-how, lack of money. If I just had blank, then I could do my best, be my best. So just think about that for a second. What is it that keeps you from doing your best? What if the message, you've got this, is true because of who has you? So in other words, you've got this, Because I've got you. If God is the one telling us, do your best, that is altogether different, altogether, as Rob said at the top, totally unlike anyone else telling you to do your best. You've got this because I've got you. I'll tell you how I read this. When I see do your best in the book of 2 Timothy, directed at preachers, and I know in a few days there's a deadline ticking where I'm supposed to get up in front of our congregation and teach the scriptures to people. I'll tell you how I've come to hear this passage. I hear my dad on the sidelines at my soccer games as a kid. Now my dad, I had Everly ask me this week, where's Everly at? Everly asked me midweek, she goes, dad, are you a sports guy? And I'm like, Yeah, I think I am. I'm a sports guy. What's up? So we just started talking. It was a really cool way to start a conversation. Thank you for that, Everly. Let me tell you this. I came from a non-sports guy. My dad was an engineer at Lockheed, and he cared about one kind of sports, whatever sport his kid was playing at the time. He raised four sons, and my dad was fanatical about my sports. He had this little uh, red plastic megaphone. And he would shout on the sidelines encouragement. And he'd be on the sidelines. And he wasn't saying, come on, Dave, do your best. Right when I messed up. And my dad was the most encouraging person you've ever met in the world. And he would just cheer me on, cheer me on, cheer me on. Do your best. That's the message I got from my dad. That's something I took away. I said, man, I want to be that kind of dad. That's what I hear when I think about this message of do your best. Let me show you two things. If you're taking notes, jot these down. My son's thrilled because his cast is off. He's like, Dad, I can take notes in church now. I'm like, yeah, you can. So Eli, write this down. (laughs) Pastor, do your best. Who you are is vital. Present yourself to God, Pastor. Before talking about rightly handling the word of truth, present yourself to God. So who you are matters. There is no need to be ashamed if you are formed in the perfect love of Christ. Where does shame come from? Fear. What does the perfect love of God do? It drives out fear. 
Pastors are prone, like probably all of us, to do really, really stupid things. Here's a really dumb thing pastors do. They compare themselves and their speaking ability and their creativity and their leadership and their churches, catch this, to other churches and pastors. Isn't that dumb? Can we all just agree that's really, really dumb? It is. That's utterly foolish. But we do it. Do your best, pastor. Don't look to the left or right about that. In fact, cheer and champion those who love Jesus and are depending on the word and the spirit and, and, and be grateful for that. That's your win. Don't you dare celebrate the fall of a pastor that had more people down the street from your church than you did. It goes on all the time. I got to speak this year at the Global Leadership Summit. That sounds really impressive. It isn't. Let me explain. The Global Leadership Summit takes place every year. It's a video conference that goes out to like 500 sites around the globe. And it pulls in all kinds of big leaders from all over the world, all kinds of different industry and whatnot. This year, they did something different. They said at the host site, host people, pick a local ministry that you would like to champion. So Foster the City got to speak at the Global Leadership Summit up in Pleasanton. So I tried to get out of it. I said, Philip, I've got tons of preaching times and lots of things to speak. He said, I really think you're the one that's supposed to speak. I said, okay, I'll go. As I'm going, I had this thought go through my head once in a while. I'm like, what am I going to say? I have a a mixed group of Christians and non-Christians. They are leaders or aspiring leaders in their field. I am going to follow world-class speakers right before lunch. Like, this is a terrible assignment. Why did I say yes to this? Anytime I would get nervous, I would realize this. Dave, you think it's about you. It is not about you. And I would flip the framework. By God's grace, I said, what an opportunity. God, thank you. We get to talk about foster the city to a group of people who may never darken the doors of a church. Oh, what an opportunity. And then guess what? That would cycle back again when I'm watching someone speak going, oh, what an amazing speaker. This is so good. Ah, I'm not. I'm up next. Not about me. God, this opportunity. Thank you. Here's what's beautiful. We shared this stage with a ministry called Monthly Miracles. They help homeless people. Super amazing group of people. This woman gets up in, before me. We each have 10 minutes. She gets up, Croatian immigrant who started this ministry, amazing things going on. And then she says this, I thought, it was, I thought I was supposed to be here to speak to you about this. But actually, about a half an hour ago, a homeless person wandered up to our table during this last session, and we did an intake with her, and I just led her to Christ. How amazing is that? I'm going, woohoo! I had to get up and confess. I said, listen, I'm a slacker pastor who for the last half hour has led absolutely no one to Christ. I've been sitting on my duff learning from a conference, right? So another opportunity, if I chose to sort of feel small, sort of feel diminished, what's the sermon I'm preaching this week? Do your best. Just get there and be you. Sometimes God makes comparisons so utterly foolish that it just like takes it off the table. If you're speaking at a conference with world-class speakers, it's, it's easy it's like playing football with NFL players. You go, yeah, I, I just, like, I'll just play. I'm not going to be like that person. 
Do your best. Who you are matters. How about this? What you teach is vital. So who you are, pastor, preacher, is vital. What you teach is vital. Can you advance the slide for me? There we go. It's there. Stop there. Perfect. Um, handle the word well. So who you are matters. How you teach and what you say matters. This word worker implies that teaching God's word is work. Give yourself to it. Again, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. Are you a parent? You are called to train up your children in the fear and discipline of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. It's work. Give your life to understanding. What is God saying in this moment, in this situation, in my life? God, I want to I hear the voice of truth. I want to follow the voice of truth to the great reward. So, not only does it apply uh, teaching God's word is work, it also requ- uh, will require workers. So, pastors, preachers, don't be lazy. Don't get discouraged. Don't get surprised when it gets hard. Remember from a few weeks ago, everything worthwhile is uphill. Man, keep at it. Finally, it varies. Do your best. Aim for growth, not perfection. Stop comparing. Now, the Bible's chock full of examples of people not handling the word of truth accurately. First and Second Timothy devotes a lot of time to false teachers. First and Second Timothy calls out people like Hymenaeus and Philetus. It's going to be more coming up down the road. What's interesting is this. We could read all through the Gospels and see Jesus confronting people who are not rightly handling the word of the truth. Who's the ultimate example? Satan. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Every single time, Satan wraps his wicked temptation in the pure word of the truth. That's not handling the word of God accurately. That's injecting poison into the pure apple of truth and saying, here, take a bite. That's how it's going to show up for you. Many, many times in the scriptures, the warning is from within. People from your own church, people on stage at your church with a Bible degree are going to upset the faith of some. Words are... Weighty. Let me give you one uh, example. So, whenever you preach on something in a pastor's home, here's what you have to watch for. You have to watch for that temptation to invade your home. My daughter Tegan and I have been on a two day, it's not really irreverent babble, but it's just a petty discussion. No, 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 it's an argument. We are arguing over whether the Golden Gate Bridge. We both agree it's not gold. Is it orange or red? Don't answer. That's the argument, okay? It started yesterday in Santa Cruz. It made its way over the hill. Uh, we asked someone, we were going to ask Siri, and someone in my family, mom's at home, she goes, why don't we ask mom? She's smarter than Siri. <laughs> Love that. So we asked mom, and mom asked Siri. So here's what, so here's what she found. She found that Vermilion is the actual title of the Golden Gate Bridge. The description of Vermilion? Orange Vermilion. Orange Vermilion. The, the description is, it's an orange-red. 
What? No, it, no, it didn't. I'm almost, I'm almost certain because that was part of our discussion, argument. Yeah. That would negate a whole bunch of your argument. All right. Yeah, bless him, Jesus. Bless him. Okay. Um, I, I will say this. Another, another version of it is international orange. So here's, here's what I want to bring up, though. We were, we were in a very good space. Here's a, way, here's a way to end meaningless arguments. You may be right. Okay? That's a real thing. I use that all the time. If I say that to you, that may be me going, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but just, you may be right. <laughs> but you know what? Like, like, let's stop fighting. That's kind of dumb. Now, here's the amazing thing. We sat down to watch a movie last night, me and my wife and my two high school daughters. And during one of the pauses, we pause a lot during a movie because of bedtimes and people and all these things that happen. During one of the pauses, by divine providence, the screensaver on my TV was a slow drone picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. One of us in the room realized, that looks awfully orange. That looks awfully orange. Now, you may be right. Okay, now listen. What I thought was divine providence to prove someone right, what if that was a temptation, okay, to kind of stir up the argument again, right? Now, this is all in pretty good fun, um, but it's all good fun. Actually, we're not really angry at all about this. You don't, don't waste prayer on this one at all. <laughs> but it is indicative of the silly kinds of things that we get into. On certain days, some of you, if you didn't bicker, you'd have nothing to talk about in your family. <laughs> It'd just be silent. You're like, I don't have anything to say if I can't bicker. Quibble over meaningless stuff? That's my, I'm an A plus at that. The Bible says, don't do it. Here's what's interesting. It actually harms you. It destroys the one speaking. Think about American slavery. Is that bad for black people to be enslaved by white people? Absolutely. Listen to the words of Frederick Douglass. What he paints is a picture of how it destroys all the more the people doing the slaveholding. It hurts the slaveholder actually worse than the slave. Bickerer, someone who has an unhealthy craving for controversy, those who jump into everyone else's fight, caution, warning, fire, run from that. It's not meaningless. You will give account for every word you say. That's weighty. Here's how I want to conclude. I want to conclude with what's going to sound like a terrifying list. It's going to go quick, I promise you. But the question that I want to look at is this. Does my current church or a church I may attend in the future, do they give proper weight to words? Do they give proper weight to the word of God? So this is for college students moving away. This is for all of you who are thinking of moving to Idaho, Colorado, or Texas. I know you're out there because it's been happening for three years. Right? Whoever's next. 
What kind of church should we pick? Should we read a doctrinal statement? Absolutely. But 20 churches can have identical doctrinal statements and actually live it out in very different ways. Let me, let me kind of blow through these, and you can jot these down, okay? Number one is this. What place does the Bible hold in this church? What place does the Bible hold in this church? Is it reverenced as God? Man, run. Does the word point to God? Yes. Is it God? No. There's no life in the word by itself. But is it left aside as a relic? Run from that church. It's neither God nor relic. So here's a few thoughts. Is the Bible not only referenced here, but read here? Is it not just that there's a reference in the bulletin, the pastor says a few things and then talks about whatever he wants to um, after that? How much time and effort seem to go into this? If this were a meal, if the sermon time were a meal, does it seem varied and healthy and well thought out, or is it fast food? Worse, is it junk food? Worse, is it no food? Ponder that. Here's number two. Does the vibe of the message match the vibe of the text? Here's what I mean by that. Does the vibe of the message match the vibe of the text? If what you are preaching through, if the scripture you just read is full of wrath and warning, and the preacher that day is on fire with the jokes, that does a disservice to the seriousness of God. It's something like this. It's something like a parent winking and kind of laughing and smirking at their kid, going, you really shouldn't do that. (laughs) That's confusing at best. It's absolutely destructive at worst. If what you're warning them not to do is sin, you've just made light of that and made it totally confusing. Can I just tell you, I used to be a way funnier preacher. Now, we're having a lot of fun this morning because kids are in service and because there was some some leeway to do this. My go-to was humor. I'll tell you what that was about in my younger years, me. I feel more comfortable when people are laughing. My preaching has gotten a lot less funny because as we walk through books of the Bible, there's highs, there's lows, there's in-betweens. And I'm prayerfully trying to grow in being a worker who has no need to be ashamed to say, God, I want to be the paper boy delivering the news. If it's happy news, I got, I got it. If it's sad news, I've got it. If it's serious news, I've got it. If it's a combo, help me. That's that one. Here's number three. Is the Bible taken seriously? Here's what I mean by that. More than just being serious, there ought to be riotous joy in a church service. Amen? There ought to be ice cream in church services. Why? Because it's all in your Bible. Man, we are the most joyful people on the planet, even when we get devastating news. It's not pie in the sky, like just, woo, creepy weird stuff. It's real. It's deep. It's rooted. Number four. Is the Bible given the right place to speak for itself? Is the Bible given rightful place to speak for itself? Here's what I mean by that. I'm absolutely confident that Jesus thinks you can understand the Bible. Jesus thinks you can understand the Bible. Let me give you the reason for that. Jesus constantly quotes the Bible as the basis for his teaching. He doesn't teach and then appeal to experience when he's tested. He doesn't teach and then appeal to how things have always been done, man-made tradition. 
to back up the word. He doesn't teach, and then when it's tested, he appeals somehow to pragmatism. In other words, hey, this just works. Go with me on this. You know what Jesus appeals to over and over and over? It is written. It is written. It is written. In fact, here's what's fascinating. Eleven times he says, have you not read? You're challenging me on this. Have you not read? That means he thinks that regular people can understand the Bible. Thirty times he rebukes his listeners for not understanding what is said by saying it is written. So that's a powerful thing. I don't even need to gift this to you. I'm just reminding you of it. Jesus thinks you can understand the Bible. When you don't know what to do, go read your Bible. Let's just, I say this sometimes over here, let's just read this together. This is a difficult passage. Commentators are all over the place on this. I'm still sort of uncertain on this. Can we just read this in its, in its context and just, and just sit with it for a second? That's what I'm talking about with that one. Here's number five. Is the context and genre of the text discussed and factored in? If not, there's problems. Where you are in the library depends on how you read. How are cults formed? By people mishandling the word of truth. They take things out of context. Goes with this next one, number six. Are the main points of the Bible the main points of the preaching? If one tiny portion of scripture has the light shone on it and is talked about all the time to the negation of a whole bunch of other things, you have a cult. That's how cults are formed. So as we look at 2 Timothy, we ought to be pulling back and looking at Jesus. What did Jesus have to say on this? What is the arc of the storyline of Scripture? Let Scripture interpret itself. Are the main points of the Bible the main points of the preaching? Here's number seven. Is the Spirit relied on for right understanding? I have it on good authority. Catch this that you have no chance of understanding the Bible apart from God. No chance. Why? Because spiritual truths are discerned spiritually. Jim, I'm going to use your phrase. The flesh is no help at all. Jim borrowed it from the Bible, so I can borrow it from Jim. We are going to depend on the Spirit for interpretation of this. Not the best speaker, not the loudest, not the one that bullies me the most, Not the one who's going to unfriend me if I don't agree with him. Look back at verse 7 in your Bible right now. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. This is so powerful. Paul says this. Reflect on what I am saying. What's part 2? The Lord will give you insight. What is our part, Christian? Stop and reflect. Think. Give yourself to understand what God is actually saying. The Lord will give you insight. God, I'm here. I'm reflecting. I'm doing my quiet time, and it's not so quiet this morning because I'm wrestling. A decision is coming up. I don't know what's right. I'm hearing things on all sides. Reflect on what I'm saying. The Lord will give you insight. God, I'm going to trust that you'll be the one right next to my ear whispering it at the time I need it the most. Here's number eight, last one is relationship to Christ central to both the meaning and application of all of Scripture? If it's not, you have something other than Christianity. 
Go do a study sometime of all these different places Jesus quotes talking about himself. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. It's in the law. It's in all these different things. Jesus says, yeah, that's about me. That one, that's talking about me. But that's talking about the Son of Man. That's me. The scripture is about Christ. If we don't interpret that through that lens, we'll preach the Old Testament and just preach sort of uh, morality. Go be a Daniel. Go be a David. Go be a Deborah. If we apply the scriptures, do my best, apart from our connection to Christ, we get it all wrong, don't we? We turn into jerky religious people, a.k.a. Pharisees, Sadducees, the very team Jesus went off after the loudest and most publicly. Band, I want you to come on up right now. I told you at the very end I would give you this. What if I'm not a preacher? Does this apply to me? Absolutely. First of all, aspire to this same standard. Secondly, as a witness, and by saying as a witness, I mean as a Christian. Your life is preaching whether you like it or not. uh, Jesus. Eli. (laughs) Eli wore this shirt yesterday. It's all about Jesus. We're at the dog beach in Santa Cruz. We got into precisely two amazing conversations because that kid was wearing his It's All About Jesus shirt. He's unashamed. And God used it to preach little sermons to each other, encourage one another. If you're a parent, if you're a friend, if you're a neighbor, let me say this. Once you out yourself as a Christian, your life is being scrutinized like a sermon. I generally know how Christians are supposed to act. Is this person acting that way? If not, I'm all over that person. Church, do your best for God. Pray with me. God, there are seasons that we need a dad cheering on the sidelines through a red megaphone encouragement. God, there are seasons that we need you prompting us with a single word, fire, get out now. Your very life depends on it. God, I pray that you would help us give most weight to your eternal, weighty word. Thank you for the help we have in Jesus. It's the only help that will get us through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.